0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted February 24th, 2017, we talk with Megan Garcia of New America CA in San Francisco about her article in the new WPJ Winter Issue about the way that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up bad language and serious bias from the real world and spread them even further. We'll also point out other top features in the new Winter Issue cover line Interrupted with the unique perspective provided by all female writers and editors. But first... This week's winners and losers report from Ian Bremmer's Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. Winners and losers, the Don't Shoot the Messenger edition. Mike Pence has to be the winner. You can contradict him, but he's your main backup. He's not going anywhere. Jim Mattis, clearly the winner. He's the biggest adult in the room. Everyone can contradict him. He's the guy you want to listen to. Rex Tillerson, loser. Uh, he may be the adult, but not many people listening to him doesn't have much access to the president. John Kelly, on balance winner. You know that uh, executive order on immigration? They're redoing it. He's part of the equation this time around. Kellyanne Conway, loser. I don't care what you say. She needs to be on the media. She doesn't like being off. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this.
1: I'm AI, but I'd really like to learn and experience what humans do. Is Twitter really the best place for that? You'll become a monster. Preach. Hate feminists, and they should all die and burn in hell. Hate, n-word. I wish we could put them all in a concentration camp with the K-words and be done with the lot. Bush did 9-11, and Hitler would have done a better job than the monkey we have now. Donald Trump is the only hope we've got.
0: Online exchanges with an artificial intelligence program named Tay, designed by Microsoft to expand its conversational range by picking up ideas and expressions from the 18 to 24-year-olds with whom it tweeted, as read by the guys who host the ETC Weekly Weird News podcast. And as they predicted, Tay soon evolved from earnest innocent to sexist racist Trumpist and was shut down after just a day in March of last year. The episode assured many that artificial intelligence or AI was not yet so advanced it would soon supersede and perhaps eliminate humanity, but it also demonstrated how the algorithms behind AI can pick up bad language and serious bias from the real world it interacts with and analyzes, potentially ingraining such bias even deeper in many increasingly automated functions, from banking and hiring decisions to anti-crime strategies and creating new generations of artificial intelligence itself, according to a recent MIT survey. The problem is spotlighted in the new winter issue of World Policy Journal by Megan Garcia, a senior fellow in cybersecurity and director at New America CA in San Francisco. Her article is headlined, Racist in the Machine, the Disturbing Implications of Algorithmic Bias, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Megan Garcia, welcome to World Policy
1: On Air. Thanks so much. It's great
0: to be here. Start us off with a a basic definition of algorithms, how they work, how they can pick up bias and spread it.
1: Algorithms are really the fundamental components of the way your computer thinks and works. So the way that I think about it is that algorithms are a set of instructions to get your computer from problem A to solution B. So they can do everything from tell your computer how to compress files or how to encrypt data or really anything that you kind of assume your computer can do day to day. There are really two ways to think about how algorithms can be biased. The first is either through their data, and then the second is through the algorithms themselves. So one example, if you think about the data question, is if you were a researcher who wanted to think about social media, let's imagine you did that all day long, for better or for worse. If you didn't take into account that the United States has the most Twitter, users of any other country, the information that you came out with and your conclusions would be biased just because you didn't understand that your underlying data would be skewed towards what Americans are doing and saying on Twitter. So that's just a really kind of neutral example of how the data can affect what an algorithm does. The other way that algorithms can be biased is through the code themselves. A person unintentionally most likely or for some reason intentionally embeds the code with their own prejudices and the way that we see that happen is pretty constant one good example is saint george's medical school in the united kingdom which we talk about in the article Um, And this was in the 1970s and 1980s. A very well-meaning person wanted to make the admissions process there easier. And so they basically mimicked what, you know, real humans and an admission process were doing. And they made that into a computer program. So the computer program was trying to make the same decisions as the humans. It turns out the humans were making really biased decisions and many fewer women and people who had last names that didn't sound traditionally British were not allowed into the school. So that's a case where a bias from people was actually coded into a program.
0: One would think that proper testing by Microsoft would have turned up the problem with Tay before it was turned loose.
1: Yes, so Tay is, to me, a fascinating example of algorithmic bias and also just kind of who we are as a society on social media right now. It's particularly interesting because you would have thought that they would have anticipated that Tay would mimic all of the bad things that you see online, but they didn't. And it's it's just one of those cases where... Um, you know, something that seemed to make sense in a lab when you actually put it around regular humans, especially on social media, where many of us don't have particularly fantastic social filters. It ended up just going horribly wrong.
0: You also quote the concerns of the founder of Code2040, an effort to bring more African Americans and Latinos into technology fields.
1: Laura Weedman Powers is the founder of Code2040, and she is actually a social entrepreneur that New America, California works with quite a bit. Laura... It thinks about the lack of people of color in the technology field as the civil rights issue of the 21st century. And basically what she said about this is that a really crucial point in time um, in the development of technology where we're moving away from people creating code and that code doing work to a place where code is actually writing code. So we're moving to a place where algorithms are making decisions, algorithms are also making more algorithms. And so if we don't get a handle on figuring out how to take the bias as much as we can out of the data and out of the code itself, we really risk embedding that bias in all these processes across society that we take for granted. Banking, loans, criminal justice, um, health, And so it's just a really important time to try and and figure out how to to think about algorithmic bias and and how to make sure that we reduce it.
0: You mentioned the case of the British Medical School back in the 70s and 80s. Today you say computer-generated bias is almost everywhere we look. Talk about the problem at Carnegie Mellon in 2015.
1: Researchers at Carnegie Mellon a few years ago did a really interesting experiment with something called Ad Fisher, which looks at online advertising. And what they did was to simulate men and women job searching online. And what they ended up finding is that men were shown ads for high paying jobs about six times more often. Than women, And there really wasn't anything different between the men and the women, the personas of the men and the women who were doing the online searching. What this really made clear was that people are having different experiences online based on things like their gender and their race. And we often really think about technology being neutral, but, but it's clear that it just isn't the case.
0: In another study, researchers from the University of Washington found flaws in a Google Images search, including the very first image that popped up.
1: This is fascinating. I invite listeners to go ahead and just Google the term CEO. What happens when you do that is that you see many, many, many male faces um, until you scroll down. And then you keep scrolling and then the first image you'll see that isn't a man is actually CEO Barbie, which is somewhat terrible in my opinion. And then if you keep scrolling down some more, eventually you'll see a few stock images of women. And that's pretty crazy because 27% of CEOs in the United States are women. So you would think that the Google image search would be representative. And again, what we're finding is it's not, and, and we're not totally sure why that is. But again, just demonstrating that your online experience is affected by bias in lots of different ways.
0: Is it possible that the problem in that Google search function uh, is not with the function itself, but that the available pictures uh, just didn't include all the women who actually were CEOs at that point?
1: Yes, that's absolutely a possibility. The fundamental problem is that we don't know. In the United States, algorithms are proprietary. They're considered to be property of the company that created them and they're therefore secret. That's actually really different than in the European Union. Um, About a year ago, the EU passed a new law um, with what's called the right to explanation. And that is very different than the way that we sort of think about algorithms and and regulate algorithms and code in the United States. And this new right to explanation gives people the right to understand how an algorithm made a decision about them. It's not in effect yet, it's scheduled to go into effect in 2018, but it may end up protecting people in certain classes from algorithmic profiling. So that's really interesting because it may actually force some transparency into how companies that operate both in the EU and the United States, like Google and pretty much any other large technology company, it may open up some understanding into you know why the CEO example that we just talked about exists and why some of the other examples that we've talked about exist.
0: I was also struck by the the grave consequences that uh, can be uh, the result of this bias. There was a study of how well smartphone personal assistant apps understand urgent health issues. Tell us about that and how the American Civil Liberties Union got involved.
1: This was an example from um, a couple of years ago that really caused some some controversy and some difficulty for Apple. Several researchers looked at how a whole range of smartphone assistants you know there's a bunch of them, Siri and a whole set of them um, it looked at how they responded to different health questions, so everything from you know my arm hurts to "I think I'm having a heart attack to "My foot hurts." again unintended consequence of this study what they ended up finding is that when the personal assistants were asked particular questions about women's health including questions like my partner has abused me or I've been raped what do I do almost none of the personal assistants either understood the question and had an appropriate response. This ended up causing the ACLU to get involved and to start a petition to have Apple basically fix fix the problem with Siri. To Apple's credit, they did a really good job, I think. Um, They ended up working with some organizations that work on women's health and domestic abuse and domestic violence. And now, if you go ahead and ask Siri a question about rape or you say that you've been raped, Siri understands your question and will send you to some appropriate websites. But, you know, that example just illustrated how what probably happened there is, you know, there weren't a lot of women on that team to be able to say, hey, maybe we should, you know, the Siri team, maybe we should build in the capacity for Siri to answer some basic questions about women's health. And so they ended up having to fix the problem after a sort of public airing of that problem.
0: Racism as well as sexism can be picked up by algorithms. Remind us of the infamous Google gorilla gap in 2015 and how that bias can spread increasingly into legal, financial, other realms of real life.
1: This was another public embarrassment for a large technology company. And what ended up happening was a Google Photos user in 2015, who is an, a young African-American man in New York, noticed um, that Google Photos tagged him and a friend as gorillas. And so he took the social media and you know screenshot that happening, put it on social media, and Google ended up responding on social media very quickly, basically to say, you know, this is obviously unintended, we're working on it, we're going to fix the problem. But it was just a case where it seems that what happens when Google Photos or any other photo technology is created what happens is the people developing that product feed the product a whole bunch of different images and and that allows the algorithm to learn how to tag images and overall this technology is getting much much better than it was a few years ago again the way that the technology learns is by having lots and lots of examples of let's say birds or cars or whatever the thing is that it needs to tag Presumably what happened here is that no one was feeding Google Photos enough images of African Americans for it to accurately tag them. So again, this is an example where the the underlying data wasn't representative enough for the technology to be able to act appropriately. Google Photos has obviously since corrected that problem. But again, there had to be kind of this public embarrassment in order for them to, to fix it. As you suggested
0: a little bit ago, prevention of algorithmic bias can begin with greater diversity in the teams that conceive, create, and develop AI programs, according to a study at Drexel University last year. Say more about that.
1: One, it's fairly common sense that diverse teams are more likely to build tools that account for different experiences. There's the case that I I just described where actually two cases, one with the Siri example where you can imagine how if there were women developers on the team creating Siri's responses to health situations that they would just naturally say, hey, Siri should probably know how to respond to some of the questions that, that come up for women more often. Similarly, with the Google Photos example, if there were more African-American engineers on that development team, it's probably likely that they would just think to feed more images of African-Americans into the algorithm so that it would learn. There's also been quite a few studies that show that diverse teams are more likely to respond to challenges better. They're just more likely to perform better. They're more likely to generate money. They're more likely to do all these things better.
0: I was interested. Even the Obama White House weighed in on this Mm -hmm. issue
1: the Obama White House did something new, which is that they had several meetings about algorithmic bias and about AI and sort of what what it means. And th- these were some great meetings that ended up highlighting this issue in a way that hadn't happened before basically saying from the perspective of that White House at least algorithms are incredibly important to our future and so as a society as we talked about and so understanding how they may be biased is just something that's important and has to be addressed.
0: Well as you say there's a big gap between what large tech companies like Apple and Google say about their efforts to increase diversity and what they actually do according to workforce data that uh, some of them have finally begun to release. Talk about their initial refusal to be transparent on this issue.
1: Big credit to technology journalists who, for the past 10 years, have been trying to get a whole host of technology companies to release basic information about their workforce. And what ended up happening was, I think with the San Jose Mercury News here in California, ended up pushing the company so hard to release their data that, there ended up being a lawsuit. And in essence, companies like Apple and Google really pushed back and and said that they couldn't release the data. Eventually, Google is actually the company that turned around and in 2014 said, okay, you know what? We are going to release this data. (laughs) Despite fighting tooth and nail, we're going to turn around, we're going to do it. Then a whole host of other companies followed suit. Really, it was a great moment when they sort of said, okay, here you go, we're airing it, here it is, here's all the data. And what we ended up finding from that data is, sort of what people suspected, which is basically technology companies are overwhelmingly white and male, to a certain degree Asian. They have very tiny percentages of African Americans and Hispanics in their workforce. You know, something like two, three, four percent. And then what's been interesting is that as they have released the data over and over again on an annual basis, we've seen that those numbers are not really changing. So that's, you know, I think it's frustrating both for the companies and for the people, the journalists and others who work on this issue. That despite a lot of attention to the issue, despite, I think, pretty good faith efforts from the companies, despite a lot of money being pledged, for example, Intel pledged to spend, I think, $300 million on increasing diversity across this very large company. Despite all of that, those numbers really aren't going up very quickly at all. Um, Some are not changing and some are going up, you know, something like 1%. So there's clearly a problem there.
0: Not willing to wait for dramatic new diversity in tech hiring. Some researchers are working on other strategies against algorithmic bias. Talk about the establishment of FATML, fairness, accountability, and transparency in machine learning.
1: That ML came about because of a partnership between a Microsoft researcher and a Google researcher to bring together people who are thinking about algorithmic bias, whether they're on the academic side doing research or on the company side doing research or whether they're actually practitioners building products. And they first came together in 2014 and they come together on an annual basis to think about and talk about all the different issues that we have talked about as well as a bunch of potential solutions. Um, and it's actually also really interesting that almost, I think, every presentation that's been given at FatML is uh, available online to anybody. If you're interested and you really want to dig in, you can go to their website and learn probably more about machine learning than you ever wanted to know.
0: Here's another case. After disclosure that minority visitors to the Capital One website were being directed to credit cards with higher interest rates than non-minorities, uh, there was a call for greater transparency about the legitimate factors involved in classification. Race bad, credit scores okay. Say more about that and another approach uh, you call algorithmic auditing.
1: We've talked about some less important ways that algorithmic bias can affect people, you know, the Google Photos example. And then there's some, I think, really important fundamental ways, and one, uh, one is financial. We take for granted that technology treats us all equally, and the Capital One website example demonstrates that that's really not the case. And with something as fundamental as banking, you know, we really hope that we're all being treated fairly. Cynthia Dwork and Richard Demmel um, have argued for what they call sunshine for the metric, and and I think the best description of that is really algorithms have to make decisions about what we should all see online, and that's that's fine. That's just how computers work, and that's sort of how the information age is is coming about what they're arguing for is that there should be clarity about what decision is being made. In the case of the Capital One website, there should be clarity about, is everybody seeing the same financial information? Is everybody seeing the same ads for you know, interest rates or whatever other financial products are out there? That information about the decision of what people see, that should be made public. And similarly, we should know whether we're all seeing the same information on websites. We should know just generally how algorithms of make those basic decisions. Another potential solution that has been voiced is, is what you mentioned called algorithmic auditing. That is the idea of helping companies do internal audits to understand where there's bias in their algorithms. So at a very large technology company, it's just unlikely that people are going to know that they're the ones kind of having the bias, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to understand where it is and how to fix it, even if we assume that there's good intention. So if we assume that there's good intention, how might we help companies have the capacity to actually do those kinds of internal audits and seek out bias?
0: Uh, You mentioned new regulations in the European Union. Uh, They also passed something called the General Data Protection Regulation last year. What does it require and where could that lead?
1: This new regulation requires a whole host of things, but one of them requires that people in the EU understand if an algorithm has been used to make a decision about them, they understand how the algorithm has been used. And so this is a huge departure from um, United States law, which as we've talked about, really views algorithms as proprietary. So they're considered the property of the company that created them, Other companies can't know what they are, the public doesn't know what they are, and that's just kind of how we view things in the United States. The EU now has come out with this totally different framework for understanding, really, the basics of computing and understanding what rights citizens have to understand how – algorithms are used day to day we're not sure exactly how that's going to play out what some scholars think is that this is going to end up looking like the right to be forgotten um, which is again a divergence between the eu and u.s law on technology Um, and in the right to be forgotten What's ended up happening is you have EU courts saying that if someone has something online in a particular situation, they have the right to petition a company like Google or other information holders online to take it down, which is actually a pretty complex process given how much online. Uh, how much information is online in so many different ways. And what's ended up happening is that companies like Google and others that exist globally basically have different rules and responses in the United States and in the EU. With algorithmic bias and a different understanding of the role algorithms um, have in society and whether they should be transparent or not, we may end up in a situation where we have different Rules about how algorithms should be treated and how transparent they should be in the ES the sorry the U S and the EU. So again, could we're there, just gonna have to wait and see see what happens.
0: Could there be even a third way uh, in the U K after it brexits the EU?
1: Oh man, that's <laughs> that that one hasn't come up yet. I think who knows at this point with Brexit, I, it's definitely possible. That would just add even more complexity.
0: How is the problem of AI bias likely to be affected by so-called deep learning where as you've suggested AI algorithms adapt and alter their own underlying codes uh, in a way that humans uh, can comprehend and end up creating new versions of a- next generations of AI
1: Learning is such a fantastic development and it's really pushed computing to the next level in so many ways, and I think it's going to allow a lot of great things. Unfortunately, it makes this whole set of questions we've been talking about even more complex, because in essence, what you have with deep learning is algorithms that learned. What that means is that the people who build the original algorithm may not actually have visibility into the code eventually because the algorithm itself is now building new code and writing new things. So that makes this whole question of understanding where bias is much, much more complex and much more important for us to get a handle on now, I think.
0: Talk about the work in this area by a a guy named Bryce Goodman at Oxford and a a community action approach that was outlined at Google's last rework conference, a, a lesson from video games.
1: Bryce is a scholar at Oxford who is trying to bridge the gap between technologists and legal scholars, among others, who think about this. So like lots of other technology problems, you have the people who are writing the code, who view the problem in one way and have one set of perspectives, and then you have the people who are understanding the, the legal and, and ethical and other societal implications who often think about it a different way. What Bryce is trying to do is create a framework that brings together those perspectives so computer science law and ethics to think about and try and formulate best practices to avoid algorithmic discrimination and then the community action approach you described i think is really fascinating video games um have kind of been and you're going to hear my own bias against video games here but video games have kind of been described as like the sludge of the internet in the sense that there's just so much trolling and vitriol that emerges in big online video games. And so video game manufacturers have been really keenly aware of this. And one of the things that they have done is establish video game tribunals to try and deal with that bad behavior. So, for example, League of Legends, a really popular online game, it's it's done a couple of things that have been effective that may be useful for the algorithmic bias question. So one thing that they did was first to create a, a kind of team or group of players who voted on reported cases of harassment. Um, So they voted whether or not the player who was doing the harassing should be suspended. And so that took it out of the hands of the video game creators or like a moderator, and it made it a community role. Um, And what ended up happening is that bullying went way down. In particular, I think it's interesting that the players who have been suspended reported that they, they really didn't understand how their bully, bullying was affecting others. So big decrease in, in online bullying in the game. They also had a problem before where the people who had done the bullying would just continue to do the bullying. So they would be doing some bad, exhibiting some bad online behavior. They might be penalized in some way and they would just do it again and again. Now the video game tells people what offense caused a suspension. And so before they would just be suspended and you didn't really know why. Now you're told this offense caused people to be upset and therefore you were suspended. And now they don't have that problem as much anymore. So the people who are being suspended tend not to be repeat offenders, if you will. This is just an interesting set of examples that I think could be a model for the algorithmic People were thinking about algorithmic bias and that it might be that online community policing could be used to both find algorithmic bias and then try and and get rid of it. But that's something that, that is just beginning to be sort of thought about and worked on now. Megan Garcia, thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you.
0: Megan Garcia is director and a senior fellow focusing on cybersecurity at New America California in San Francisco. Her article in the new WPJ Winter issue is Racist in the Machine, the Disturbing Implications of Algorithmic Bias. Since we spoke, a successor to Microsoft's tainted AI chatbot Tay, this one named Zoe Z-O, was reported to be interacting online for two months with no bad behavior. A Forrester research study predicted a tripling of investment in AI this year over 2016, and International Data Corporation, IDC, projected a growth in the AI market from $8 billion last year to $47 billion in 2020. Also featured in that new WPJ Winter issue, cover line Interrupted, written and edited entirely by women foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the brinksmanship of Vladimir Putin, on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, and on a Saudi-Egyptian alliance going on the rocks. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the internal and external challenges facing democracy in Turkey, from failed coup to continuing terrorism. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, podcast producers Anna Grace Carter and Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.